Let us get started. We are in Genesis 18 and 19, the second half of 18 and all of chapter 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and some stuff on the front end of that and the back end of that that um, works with that. So we are going to read the entire passage. We'll see how that goes and then jump into it. So chapter 18, starting in 16. And previously... Uh, two angels disguised as men had come to Abraham and Sarah to tell them they were going to have a child, and so they've just finished up their interaction that they've had. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the wicked with the righteous? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He said, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. 
And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become the judge. Now we will deal with you worse than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zeor, which means small. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zeor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. No, Lot went up out of Zor to live in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Whew. It's a lot of text. <laughs> Thank you. 
So, there aren't many passages in Scripture where you get attempted gang rape and the total annihilation of a city and valley and incest all in the same passage. So, it'll be interesting. Let us pray. (laughs) God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage uh, as weird and twisted as some of it is. I pray, God, that you would be glorified through it, that we would see Jesus in this passage. And uh, yeah, thank you, God. Pray too for Spencer and Amy that you'd be with them today. Amen. So if you look at your insert, basically I broke this passage down into two halves, uh, justice and mercy. So the first half, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, uh, quoting from the passage. And then the second half, the Lord being merciful to him. And then that little third chunk is the conclusion. So kind of tying it all together. So let's start with some judgment, shall we? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So uh, the idea of God as a just God overall is not necessarily something people have a problem with. Most people in the world want some degree of justice. When we see evil and atrocities happen, we want justice in those cases. The problem comes when there's justice that's directed towards us. Because then, of course, we'd rather have mercy than justice. So justice is fine for other people, for those really bad people, for the people who need justice. But for us, well, I'll take mercy. So we're going to look in the first half of this at God as a just God. He is a just God. He performs actions of justice. And this is something which people sometimes have a problem with. They'll read some of the Bible and they'll say, oh, well, that was the Old Testament God. He was mean. He just destroyed everyone and didn't really care about people. But then Jesus came and that changed. And we're going to see that, one, that is not true, and two, uh, that justice and mercy have always been mixed with God, and it's necessary that that is so. And you see that here. God here is not being just vindictive. What's he say at the beginning? That there's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's great. So God wasn't just sitting there one day, and he's like, well, I haven't really wiped anyone out recently. Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll go there and wipe them out. No, there was an outcry that had come up that he'd heard. It was great. And they also had sin they were committing that was very grave. So even with that, he doesn't just say, all right, well, there's this outcry that's come up. Their sin is very grave. I'll just destroy them. No, what's he do? He goes down, sends angels down to see whether uh, what's being said is actually true. And he says, if it's not, I will know. So he's going to go down, check it out, and see, okay, here are the, here's the list of things against them. Let's go see if it's true. If it is, I'll deal with it. But if not, then I'll know, and then I'll deal with it accordingly. So uh, there's that. And then you have the next passage here, starting with 19.1, which seems to contradict what they've heard the beginning here. So the angels come to Sodom in the evening. And for us, if we're traveling somewhere, Uh, to another city or another state or another country, we can get lodging. We can look up a hotel or a bed and breakfast or whatever, assuming we're going somewhere where we don't have friends or family to stay with, and we can get a room for the night. And typically that's not very hard, even in smaller towns. That was not necessarily the case back uh, in this time. If you were in larger towns, there might have been rooms. If you recall the story of Jesus' birth when Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, that there was an inn in that town. It was full, but there was a place people could stay from out of town. But some of these smaller towns, they didn't have that. And so if you came to this town and you didn't know anyone in town, 
you were in trouble because you didn't have somewhere to stay for the night. But culturally, hospitality was a huge thing. And the town square where the angels come uh, and where Lot is, uh, that would be, towns were built usually around a well, and the well would be in the center of town. And there was no running water, no plumbing, so someone from each household would have to go each day to collect water for uh, dishes and cleaning and drinking and all that kind of stuff. So as people were coming and going, any strangers who were in town would go to the town square and hopefully someone would offer them hospitality and a place to stay for the night. And that was common. So unlike today, where if I'm walking through downtown Minneapolis, if you think of that as one of the town squares, I'm not necessarily going to offer the people I meet a place to stay for the night. It's possible, but it's not likely. But here, that was just a common thing, and it was relatively a relatively safe thing to do. And so you see that happening. You see Lot practicing hospitality, as you would expect in this culture. He invites them to come with him. Uh, they say, no, you know, we don't want to impose. We'll just sleep here in the square. Probably that means uh, the weather was fairly nice. It wasn't super cold or too hot. They're like, no, we'll be fine. You know, we've got our cloaks. We'll just lay down here and sleep. But Lot insists, and they come with him, and he offers them a place to stay, and then he feeds them too. And he doesn't just give them, you know, their leftover food for breakfast or something. What's it say here? He makes a feast for them, and he bakes unleavened bread for them. So he bakes a fresh loaf of bread and serves them a feast. So he's really being hospitable to them. So you read these couple of verses, it's like, oh, the reports were wrong. Look at this. You know, they're treating him re- these strangers really well. They're doing exactly what they should in terms of hospitality. This is great. This is just what you'd expect to see, you know, and Lot being related to Abraham, like just showing off this godliness. This is great. It's going great. And then you get to verse 4. So before they lay down for the night, so the eating's done, maybe they're sitting around talking or doing whatever, but they haven't gone to bed yet. The men of the city come. And notice in verse 4 that it makes a point that it's all the men. So it doesn't just say the men of the city or all the men of the city. It uses repetition. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, in case you forgot where we were, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So you get this idea, you've got a mob suddenly that's shown up. And it's every male in the city except for Lot who've, and the two angels who, of course, are in the house right now. So they're all there. And they're not there to uh, welcome them and wish them well. So where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And just to be clear, they want them to come out so they can have sex with them. So basically, they want to initiate gang rape is what's going on in this passage. So you've got these two strangers who are visiting and the whole town is coming. They're like, bring these men out. We're going to do what we want with them. And then you read the first line of Lot's response. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. It's like, oh, great. You know, he's still um, acting as he should. This is great. And then you read the next line. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. So two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to them and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. So it just goes from bad to worse. You've got these two guys, the town shows up, they're like, bring these guys out, we're going to rape them. Lot's like, don't do that, that's a wicked thing. Here, I'll give you my virgin daughters, you can rape them instead, do whatever you want with them. But don't hurt these two guys. Not a good response. So, it goes from bad to worse. And then, uh, the men, they don't accept that, they reject that, they just get angry. They're like, who are you? You weren't born here. You didn't grow up here. You came. You sojourned from somewhere else, and now you're going to be our judge. You're going to tell us what we can and can't do. No, no, no. We're going to treat you worse than we treat the men. So think about that. 
We know what they're planning to do to those two men, and now they're threatening to do something worse to Lot. So the situation just keeps going from bad to worse. Uh, and uh, starting to see, yeah, you know, the report God's heard about this town seems to be fairly accurate. This is a bad place. And uh, makes those two guys, obviously the two guys are angels, so we're going to see in a minute they have power to protect themselves, but makes them glad they didn't decide to spend the night in the town square, that they're in a building instead. So uh, now they're not only threatening the two men, but they're threatening Lot. And by extension, uh, his family would have been in danger. But uh, we know that uh, nothing bad happens here in terms of action, that the men... Uh, the two angels strike all the men outside the house with blindness so they can't find the door, and then eventually Lot and his family escape from the town. But we see here, clearly there is reason for judgment here. Clearly there is reason for God's judgment in this passage. So uh, before we go on, a quick word. This is not a sermon on homosexuality. Obviously it's present in this passage, but it's not the main point of the passage. So just to say... A few words on that, but last summer we did a big question series and homosexuality was one of the topics we covered. So if you want to hear more beyond what I say right now, please go and listen to that sermon and you can hear uh, what Hiawatha as a church believes about that, what scripture says about it, what it says about uh, how we should treat people uh, in that situation. But from this passage and from the rest of the scripture, just to be clear, uh, biblically homosexuality is sin. But it is not like the unforgivable sin or even the worst of sexual sins. Other sexual sins are on equal footing with it. So uh, just to say that. And as I said, if you have more questions, you can feel free to talk to me after the service or listen to that other sermon, which is online. If you go to our website, you can find it. So moving on. So even from this, we see there's clearly, clearly grounds for God to judge this town. But... This isn't all. It's not just sexual sin that's happening here. There's other sin, which we're going to see. So Lot wants to warn his sons-in-law. He cares about them. He doesn't want them to die. He doesn't want them to be destroyed. So he tells them, you have to get out of here. God's going to destroy the city. But, they seem, but it says he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So here they are. God, has, or God through Lot has proclaimed truth to Lot's sons-in-law, and they're rejecting that truth. They're saying, no, like what you're saying is crazy talk, you're just joking, like this is some kind of game, nothing bad is going to happen. So we see even more sin, that they're rejecting truth that God's presented. And then it's not just the other people in town who are sinning. There's Lot. Obviously Lot offering his daughters was sin that was wrong. He should not have done that. And then beyond that, so Lot's been warned, the morning of destruction comes, the angels are urging them, get out of town, like the sun's rising, we're about to destroy the town, you need to leave right now, you need to flee. But what's Lot do? He lingers. He's like, well, you know, this is a nice house, this place isn't really so bad, maybe I'll stick around, to the point where they actually have to drag him and his family out of town. So Lot doesn't go willingly, they have to drag him out. So Morrison, on Lot's part, that he sees, you know, last night, he saw the sin that happened. He participated in sin that happened. He's seen more sin happen. He's been warned by God to leave the town. And what does he do? He lingers. He doesn't go. He doesn't want to leave sin. He doesn't want to trust God and obey him and go to safety. He wants to stay with sin and embrace that. So more sin. And then another one. So as they're escaping, they're told not to look back. And uh, 
that doesn't mean necessarily like, oh, you know, I tripped and I need to look like this to make sure, you know, I didn't lose anything. That's not what's happening with Lot's wife here. The looking back is an indication, just like with Lot lingering, she's longing for that. She's longing to go back to that. She's saying, well, I'm on my way out of this town. God's going to destroy it. We're on our way to safety. He's been merciful to us. He's going to save us. But I kind of miss it. I kind of want to go back. And God turns her into a pillar of salt uh, because of that. So, uh, these are the things that were happening uh, that caused this uh, Sodom and Gomorrah to be worthy of God's judgment. And reading this, you know, if I, you know, someone walks up and says, oh, did you hear about the time God uh, proclaimed judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? And you're like, oh, well, that's kind of mean. Why would he do that? It's like, well, let me get you the list. You had this going on and this going on and this and this. And you read these things, it's like, okay, it's a little more clear now what's going on. It seems a little more justified. And uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And he does. So Lot and his family finally get out after being dragged out and uh, finally leaving the city. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And notice verse 25, it, may, it goes to great lengths. Uh, to make it clear that he destroyed everything. So it's not just the people and not just the buildings in the city, but everything. He overthrew those cities and all the valleys. So the valley the city was in, the whole valley was destroyed. And all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. So total destruction of this valley. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are gone. The valley itself is gone. Vegetation, flowers, plants, anything that was growing. Anything that grew on the ground, gone. All the inhabitants, gone. He completely wipes it out. Doesn't leave anything left. And then Abraham, uh, later that morning, goes back to the place where he had stood with the Lord the day before and kind of bargained with God a little bit back and forth. Bargained isn't quite the right word, but close enough. And he looks, and what does he see as he looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah? The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So the aftermath of the fire and sulfur that fell from heaven, when Abraham looks, he can't even see the valley to see, oh yeah, this is scorched and this is gone. It's just smoke. It's like looking into a furnace or a giant campfire. All he sees is smoke rising up from the valley. So that's the picture we have of the Lord's justice in this passage. A picture of total destruction and annihilation of raising everything to the ground, wiping it out, nothing left. That is what God does to Sodom and Gomorrah. So, uh, you might say, all right, that's an interesting story, or I'm uncomfortable with that story, or I like that story, or whatever your reaction is. But then you might ask, well, how does that apply to me? Sodom and Gomorrah, it's on the other side of the world. It was gone a long time ago. You know, thousands of years ago, why do I care? You know, that was the Old Testament God. I mean, have you read the Gospels? Have you seen Jesus? Jesus loves people. He saves people. He doesn't rain down fire to burn people. In fact, when the apostles once want to rain down fire on a town that rejected Jesus' message, Jesus rebukes the apostles. He's like, no, you don't know what you're doing. Just be quiet. That's not how I do things right now. I'm not going to destroy that town. So why is this here? Why is this matter for us? It matters because Genesis 19 is not just a story unto itself. It ties in with the rest of the Bible. And Genesis 19 foreshadows a greater judgment. So if you look at this picture, there's a shadow there. And we can tell by looking at it, it's the shadow of a tree. So foreshadowing, something that comes before, 
and gives indications of something to come later is kind of like the shadow of a tree. You can look at it and you can see, okay, it's a tree. From this angle, it's kind of hard to tell, but it looks like there's probably leaves on the tree. It looks full, it's not just branches. But there's, there are things we can't tell from looking at this. We can't tell exactly what color the bark is. We can't tell what type of tree it is. We could narrow it down some and eliminate some types, but we can't necessarily tell what type it is. We can't tell what color the leaves are. So there are things we can't tell about the tree. We can't tell just from this picture exactly how tall the tree is, exactly how large it is. So you can tell, oh yeah, there's a tree, and it's back there, it's got some leaves on it, and you could make some educated guesses about some of it, but there are things we don't know. In the same way, we look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's foreshadowing of something that's coming later. So we can look at that, and there are things we can tell about God, about his justice. But there are some things that are still shadowy, that you can make some guesses, but you don't quite know. So Genesis 19 foreshadows a greater judgment. 2 Peter 2 and Jude 7 tell us uh, what the purpose, one of the purposes of the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah being recorded in the Bible is. So by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah are an example for us. For us, thousands of years later, that's why it's recorded. So we can read it and we get not just this interesting story or picture or disturbing story or picture, but we get an example of something that's going to come. So what is the example? It's an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and it's the example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And uh, these examples, these foreshadowings, are brought out of shadows and into clear focus uh, in the New Testament, especially in Revelation and in the Gospel of John. So we're going to look at a passage in Revelation. So the end of Revelation, uh, Revelation 21 God's final judgment. So uh, the end has come. All the kings of the earth have rebelled against God, made their last stand. He's wiped them out. The final judgment uh, has happened. The city of God has come down. So God is now dwelling with his people. And now Revelation 21 here is going to give a brief picture of uh, the final destination of all people. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega is a name for God, so God is speaking here. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Notice the use of fire and sulfur there. Someone who is familiar with scripture, they would hear that and that would reference back. They'd think, wait, I've heard that phrase before, fire and sulfur. Right, Sodom and Gomorrah, God rains down fire and sulfur. So this is hearkening back to that. So just as they were, those cities were destroyed and annihilated by fire and sulfur, that's a picture of this final judgment for those uh, who are the things listed in verse 8 who have not believed in Jesus Christ. Their final portion and destination is to burn forever in the lake of fire and sulfur, the second death. And you might think, well, 
okay, but that's still, like, that's just God doing that. That's not Christ. That's God the Father on the throne proclaiming this judgment that's going to happen. Like, that's not what Jesus did. I'll just stick with Jesus. Jesus loves. Jesus forgives. Jesus is like the nice guy. And God the Father, he's like the mean guy. And Jesus certainly does love, and he certainly does forgive. And those are important things, and we see that in the gospel. But the one doing the judging here is not God the Father. It's Jesus Christ. So, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is right before the judgment happens, so like the final battle that's going to happen between God and his enemies. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So verse 16 there, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that tells us definitively that this is talking about Jesus. So Jesus absolutely is the one who came in a manger, born as a baby, grew up, died for our sins, preached that he had come, that the kingdom of God was near, preached that he was the way, to be reconciled to the Father. And that's how he came. But Jesus is coming back. But his second coming, he's not coming back to once again offer forgiveness to people, to once again offer salvation. That's been offered. When he comes the second time, he comes to judge. He comes with eyes like fire, wielding a sword, clothing dipped in blood. He even has a tattoo on his thigh, a name written on himself. So there you go. So this is the second coming of Jesus Christ, coming to destroy his enemies, to wipe out his enemies, and to bring salvation for those who have believed, certainly. John 5, 22 through 30, selected verses from that passage. This is Jesus talking. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father or whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment, because he, the Son, is the Son of Man. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So even in the Gospels, Jesus acknowledges, I am the judge. I am the judge. I am the Savior, and I have come to save, but I'll be back to judge. And my judgment is just, because I'm not seeking my own, uh, my own gain. I'm seeking to please the Father. This is uh, the final realization of the foreshadowing of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the future for those that don't know Jesus Christ. This is real. This is going to happen someday. And those of you who are sitting here right now, who are without Christ, this is what the future holds for you at this moment. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about mercy. And that's great, because if this was the end of the passage and this was all there was, this would be a horrible sermon to listen to, because there'd be no hope. And we'd all be in trouble. But fortunately, there is mercy. But don't be deceived. 
This is the future that's coming. God's judgment will come. Jesus Christ will return and will judge the world and will wipe out his enemies and they will be punished by God forever. And look at the list. Uh, the list from Revelation 21. Well, you can't look at it because it's not on the screen. But the list from Revelation 21, you see some things in there, it's like murderers. Yep, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. It's like, yeah, you'd expect God to judge those types of people. But then you see things like the cowardly. Cowardice? Really? That's something God's going to judge? All liars. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, there's lots of bad lies. But what about, like, the lie you tell sometimes when your wife asks you, do I look good in this dress? And you say, yes, of course. Like, God's going to judge that? What about the small lies or the white lies or the half-truths? That seems a little harsh. When we look at our own sin and we see this judgment and we feel like it's unfair, it's because we don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand how offensive sin is to him. We don't understand the distance that exists between who God is and what sin is. We don't understand what an affront sin and evil are to God. Think of it like a room that's dark and you turn on a light switch and the contrast between light and darkness, and how light fills up a room. You know, you can have a flashlight, there's no dark light that you can shine and like shine darkness into a room to push back light. Light pushes back darkness and eliminates it. And in some ways it's like that with God, that his holiness pushes back and eliminates sin. It's what has to happen. Just like light and darkness, light will always push back and eliminate darkness. That's what it does. And God, it's the same way. Because of his very nature and character, the holiness that exists within him, sin is pushed back. It's something he can't tolerate. It's something that can't be in his presence. And he pushes it back, not because he's mean, not because he's unfair, not because he was bored one day and decided he'd start just wiping out people who didn't agree with him. It's because he is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. Those things are a part of who he is. Sin is contrary to those things, and so sin will be destroyed. And those who choose not to accept the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers to them, those who choose not to hold on to Christ are holding on to sin. They're holding on to something God is going to destroy, and so they too will be destroyed by God. That is the judgment that will come someday. But praise be to God that the Lord is merciful. So, kind of like we did with the judgment, we're just going to go through, look at, there's a ton of different examples of God being merciful in this passage, and we're going to look at those and then kind of summarize them. So, the first one, right at the beginning, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? God could have chosen not to tell Abraham what he was going to do, but he chooses to tell him. And then he and Abraham have this conversation, and it goes from, okay, I won't destroy the city for 50 I won't destroy the city if I find ten righteous. Which tells you since he destroyed the city, he couldn't even find ten righteous people in the city. The only people that get out, there are four people that get out, and Lot's wife doesn't make it all the way. And then you look at Lot and his daughters, and they are not a picture of righteousness in this passage at all. Lot's uh, actions towards his daughters, completely unrighteous and evil. Lot's daughters' actions towards their father, getting him drunk and getting him pregnant by him, evil actions. So they are not even a picture of righteousness. But God spares them anyway. He saves them. Uh, but God 
tells Abraham what's going on. And as we go through, we'll see at the end that Lot is saved because Abraham interceded for people. So God telling Abraham what he's going to do is what is part of what ultimately saves Lot from being destroyed. And then uh, God again shows mercy where he and Abraham have this thing and gets to the point, for the sake of ten, I won't destroy it. So this city is evil. They've done evil. The people in the city have committed evil. But if I find ten righteous, a very small percentage of the city, I will spare all those people who are evil who deserve to be destroyed just for ten righteous people. Mercy. Mercy. Not just saying, I'll save those ten people and destroy the rest. I'll spare the entire city. The mercy of God. So when the mob are trying to drag out uh, the two angels to rape them and then to do whatever they were planning to do to Lot, what happens? The men pull Lot back in the house and strike those men with blindness. Notice it doesn't say, and they struck them dead, right? Because God's going to destroy the city anyway. So why not just kill these people right now and then wipe out the rest of the city the next day? But the angels don't strike them dead. They strike them with blindness, so that they're groping around. And then look at verse 14. You might not have caught this. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law. His sons-in-law are part of the mob that's outside his door. The guys who are going to marry his daughters are outside saying, bring out these men so we can rape them. They're part of that mob. So the angels, God through the angels, shows mercy by striking these people with blindness, not with death. And then again shows mercy Lot comes out and gives his sons-in-law another opportunity. He says, God's going to destroy this place. You have to leave it. God could have just struck those people dead. No more chances. They're just done. But he doesn't. He strikes them with blindness, partly at least so that Lot's sons can have one more chance to repent, one more chance to turn to God, one more chance to accept uh, this alternative that God's offering. Up, get out of this place for the Lord's about to destroy the city. Incredible mercy, undeserved mercy. Then there's all the warnings that are given to Lot. So there's the warning in verse 12. Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, daughters, anyone in the city, bring them out. We are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against it. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. We're going to destroy it. We're not doing it right this instant. We're giving you another warning. We're giving you time to get away. And we're telling you, anyone you have in the city, you can bring with you. If they'll come, bring them with. We're not saying only you can go, that these other people are condemned, they can't get out. No, if you have family, tell them, bring them with. That's fine. Now, Lot's sons-in-law choose not to go. They reject the opportunities that are given to them, but they're given that opportunity. And then morning dawns, and again, they don't just destroy the city. They say to Lot, up, what are you still doing here? Get out of town right now. Take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And what's he do? He doesn't go. So again, they don't say, you know what? You've had chance after chance after chance. We've given you five chances over the course of this passage. Now we're just going to destroy the city. You had your shot. No, they take them and drag them out of the city when they won't go. It's like, no, leave the city. Okay, you're not going to leave. We're going to drag you out. We're going to take you out of the city. You're lingering. You're, you don't want to go. We are going to take you out of here. Mercy. And then, <laughs> so they bring him out, and they're like, all right, escape to the hills. And what's Lot do after everything that's happened and everything he's seen? He doesn't say, yes, I will do that. Thank you for saving me. He's like, you know, that's really far away. 
and I might not be able to make it there before I get overtaken by this disaster. Could we do some kind of deal? Like, I don't really feel like running that far. How about that town? That town's a little closer. It's far away. It's a small town. You can spare a small town, right? No big deal. Uh, can we just go there instead? And they don't say, no, we're destroying everything. Get up to the hills right now. Where they say they grant them that favor. Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. So he says, okay, we won't destroy that city. Go to that city. But be quick about it, because we can't destroy the rest of it till you get there. Again, mercy. He shows Lot mercy. They don't make Lot and his family go all the way up into the hills. They say you can go to this town. And then they say, we're going to wait till you get there. We're not going to start the destruction till you get there. So be quick about it. So much mercy. And then, finally, two more things. Uh, Verse 29, this is what I was talking about earlier, where uh, God decides to tell Abraham what's going on. So this is after the destructions happened. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So why does Lot ultimately live? Because God remembered Abraham. Because of Abraham, Lot lived. Mercy. And then, so the final passage with the incest and the pregnancy, you think, okay, that's gross. What good could possibly come out of that? What mercy of God could come out of that situation? Well, even in that, there is. Verse 37, so the firstborn daughter had a son and named him Moab, and he was the father of the Moabites. And if you've read other portions of the Old Testament or the beginning of Matthew and Luke where there are genealogies of Jesus showing uh, who he was descended from throughout the Bible, the name Moab and the Moabites might be familiar to you. And if you look in the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. And she ended up marrying someone from Israel named Boaz. So here's this woman who was descended from this union who ended up marrying Boaz and Boaz and Moab, or Boaz and Moab, Boaz and Ruth, one of their descendants was King David. And Jesus came through King David's line. So Jesus came through the line of this union in Genesis 19. Mercy. Showing mercy not just to the people in this story, but to all of humanity. Showing mercy to us. Having that be the line Jesus came through, showing mercy. So, just like with the judgment that foreshadows a greater judgment that's yet to come, the mercies we see here in Genesis 18 and 19 foreshadow greater mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. If you've been to Hiawatha and heard any sermons, you know it's all about the gospel. And this is where the gospel ties in, that this mercy we see is fully realized in Jesus And there's a bunch of these parallels. And we'll go over, I've got a few of them up on the screen. uh, And then a few more I'll just mention that um, I didn't put up so that we didn't have like 20 slides of verses in comparison. So the first one, Abraham drew near to God and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham comes to God and acts as an advocate for these people who don't deserve it, these people who are evil. He comes and he intercedes for them. In the same way, Jesus does that for us. From Romans 8 and from 1 John 2, 
Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one that died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is interceding for us? So just as Abraham interceded with God for people who uh, were evil and deserved to be destroyed, Jesus Christ, who died and was raised from the dead, stands at the right hand of God interceding for us who don't deserve God's mercy but receive it. 1 John chapter 2, my little children, so writing now to believers. So if you're here and you're a believer, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So for us as believers, when we sin, what happens? Jesus Christ is standing at the Father's side advocating for us. Oh, Jesse did this. That's all right. My death covered that. Jesse thought this. That's okay. My death covered that. Can you believe Jesse did that? That's so evil. It's all right. My death covered that. Jesus is interceding and advocating for us, just as Abraham did. And Jesus is a greater advocate than Abraham was. Abraham advocated in this passage. But we see a lot of other passages where Abraham sins, where he makes evil decisions. He's not perfect. Jesus was. Jesus advocates for us. And as much uh, confidence as we can see from reading Abraham advocating and seeing the benefit Lot got from that, even more do we benefit from the advocating that Jesus does for us. So that's one. Another one. So the men struck them with blindness, not with death, gave them another opportunity uh, to repent. From Second Peter again and from Ezekiel, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God is patient. He gives second chances and third chances and hundredth chances. Just like with uh, the men outside the door that God struck them with blindness and then at least for Lot's sons-in-law, they had another opportunity when Lot spoke to them. In the same way, sometimes we look around at people, usually not at ourselves, usually at other people, and think, why doesn't God do something about that? Why doesn't he do something about that person? They're so evil. Why has he let that go? Because he's patient. Because he gives people opportunity after opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. Now, his patience is not eternal. We saw Revelation 19 and 20 that judgment will come eventually. But his patience is so long-suffering. So long-suffering. Think of all the patience he's exercised with us. All the times that we rejected him. All the times that we lingered like Lot lingered and he gives us another chance. And he gives us another chance. So patient with us. There are more, too. The angels dragged Lot out of the city. He wasn't going to go. They'd given him these warnings, and he still wasn't going, and they had to drag him out. In the same way, how does salvation come to us? The Gospels talk about Jesus. Uh, they use the metaphor of Jesus going into Satan's house, where we're all prisoners, and he drags us out. He doesn't call to us and wait for us to come out on our own. He goes into us and he drags us out. He pulls us out of sin. 
He pulls us out of death. He doesn't make us walk out ourselves. Just like the angels dragged Lot and his family out of the city and saved them from destruction, Jesus did the same thing. He walked into hell. He dragged us out of sin and death and saved us. God remembered Abraham, and through that, Lot was saved. God remembers now Jesus Christ, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. God remembers that, and those who trust in that are saved, not because of things we do ourselves, but because of what Christ did for us. God remembered Abraham, and Lot was saved as a result. God remembers Jesus, and we are saved as a result. So, judgment is coming, and mercy is here. What do we draw from all of this? A few different things. One, be warned if you're in this room. If you're in this room and don't know Jesus, be warned. Judgment is coming. Jesus will return someday to judge. If you're in this room and you're a believer, be warned. Remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They serve as an example for us. God's judgment is coming. But don't just be warned, be encouraged. Be encouraged because mercy is here. Judgment is coming in the future. Mercy is here right now. Jesus was judged for you. The passage we read in Isaiah says that Jesus endured punishment for us. Jesus was the one who was destroyed, just like Sodom and Gomorrah were, so that we don't have to be. Jesus was the one who was judged. Jesus was the one who was punished by God. And we can, we can receive the benefit of what happened to him. For those here who believe that Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins through that, and was raised from the dead as proof that his payment worked and that he has power not just to overcome death for himself, but for us as well. Be encouraged, because God's mercy is here. Jesus was judged and trampled for you. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you can know him right now. There's no class you have to go through. There's no specific prayer you have to pray. There's no test on biblical knowledge. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus was judged for you, that he was trampled for you, that the type of punishment God poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, he poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross so that those who believe in Jesus don't have to fear the judgment that's coming because the judgment isn't for us. Jesus was judged in our place. And when Jesus returns, those who believe in him will receive not judgment, but the final culmination of mercy, to be with Jesus face to face, to exist with him, to enjoy his company. Verse 19 is up here as a reminder. For I have chosen him. Why does God reveal things to Abraham in this passage? Why does he allow Abraham to know what he's going to do to plead with God for the lives of Sodom and Gomorrah through that for Lot to be saved. It doesn't say he did it because Abraham was such a righteous guy or because Abraham had really impressed God with his knowledge of this, that, or the other thing. He did it because God had chosen Abraham. In the same way, God does not give us Jesus' mercy because we're great people. We are the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are the people who deserve to be destroyed. And you might look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as those people. 
Thank you that I never offered my daughters to some mob like Lot. Who would do something like that? But Scripture makes it clear. Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks God, not even one. There are people who seek religion or who seek spirituality. But apart from God's influence through the Holy Spirit, when people are confronted by Jesus Christ, they reject him. Because in with the mercy that's shown, they see glimpses of that picture of judgment. And it's like, ooh, I don't like what that shows about me. I don't like the ugliness that's reflected off of me from that. I don't like that. I don't want that. God chooses us, not because we deserve it, but because he cares for us. Because he loves us. Because of what Christ had done, has done. God chooses us just as God chose Abraham. And the end result of that, in verse 19, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Why does God choose us? Because he loves us. What is the end result of that? Same as with Abraham, God brings to us what he's promised us. He brings us salvation. He brings us reconciliation with himself and with other people. He brings us the ability to love in ways that can't be done without him. He brings us freedom from sin, freedom from death. These are some of the things God brings us. And look at the middle of that verse. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. How is it possible to do righteousness and justice? Ultimately, only those who've been chosen by Jesus can do that. Because otherwise, any righteousness or justice we do is still self-serving. There's still that piece of idolatry in it. There's still that piece of pride in it. In some small ways, people apart from Christ can do things in the short term that seem very justice and righteousy, But long term and on the grand scale of eternity and certainly in relation to God, the only way to be just, the only way to be righteous is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So today, be warned and be encouraged. And if you're here this morning, you're here ultimately because God wanted you to be here. Because there are other things that could have happened, right? You could have been sick. You could have had car trouble. You could have decided there was something else you'd rather do. But you're here. You're here because you, God wanted to remind you that judgment's coming. Not so that you go home and you cower in fear and you just are afraid of God and are just waiting for him to strike you down. But so that when you hear about his mercy, it's that much richer. When you hear about his mercy, it's that much more desirable. God offers you mercy today. If you're here today, God loves you and God cares about you. God's chosen to bring you here. God wants you. If you're here and you are a believer, remember God chose you. That's why you're a believer. Not because of anything you did or anything you were. And so we don't have to fear when we mess up and when we sin. Because God's choosing of us is not dependent on who we are. It's dependent on who Christ is. And who Christ is does not change even when we do. God continues to show us mercy. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, that is available to you. God cares about you and he desires you. As the Ezekiel verse says, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants people to turn and be saved. Be warned, be encouraged, for God has chosen you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Sodom and Gomorrah for the reminder of judgment that's coming. 
Thank you that you have given a way of escape from that judgment. Just as with Lot, you gave a way of escape, so you've given us a way of escape through Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. Pray for all of us, for those who know you, that we would be reminded of the richness of what we've received. And for those here who don't know you, that they would see uh, that choosing you is good, not just because of what it avoids, but because of what is received, because of the mercy and the grace, the freedom from sin and the reconciliation with you. Amen. Please stand and join.